This is Books for Breakfast, a podcast where we talk about books and writing. I'm Enda Wiley. And I'm Peter Sir. And you're all very welcome to this morning's show. On today's show, we'll have journalist and broadcaster Olivia Leary, who'll be in to rise to the toaster challenge. And Enda will be talking about poet and novelist Helen Dunmore. And what about a legendary dinner? That sounds interesting. More from Peter about that later. So the coffee's made. The toast is on. And the books are on the table. And you've brought in a book by a writer you've loved over the years. And indeed, it's a writer who I know very well as, as a poet, but she's not she's not only a poet. Yeah, that's right, actually. I mean, this is a writer who I've loved for very many years. I've brought in a book by the English poet, She's also a novelist. She was a children's author and her name is Helen Dunmore. She's um, also the author of this book that I've brought in, which was actually her last novel. It's called Birdcage Walk. And I really think that this is one of Helen Dunmore's finest novels. I don't think you can say uh, that it came out of nowhere. She was a very prolific writer and its brilliance, I think, is honed from years of really spectacular writing. She was the author of 12 novels, three books of short stories, numerous books for young adults and children and 11 collections of poetry. So amazing writer, really. If you like, I'll just tell you a little bit about her. Her first novel, Zenner in Darkness, was... I think really quite a remarkable debut. I remember reading it and being really, you know, impressed by it. And John le Carre described it as beautiful, but inspiring. And if there is one word I'd use about Helen Dunmore's writing, I would say it is beautiful, not in any kind of trite way. I really mean in a deep, profound way. One of the critics said about her that she couldn't write a bad sentence if she tried. But her first novel, Zenner in Darkness, explored the events which led to D.H. Lawrence, the writer, being thrown out from Cornwall, being expelled from it because the locals suspected he was a spy. It's a really interesting story and it won the McCatrick Prize at the time. And about Helen Dunmore, it's fair to say she she was no stranger to prizes. Her third novel, A Spell in Winter, won the first ever Orange Prize for Fiction. That was way back in 1996. And she went on to become a Sunday Times bestseller. And I think Anthony Beaver at the the time described The Siege, another novel she wrote, as a world-class novel. So you're really talking about a superb writer. And I loved her novel, Exposure. It was a brilliant spy thriller set in London in the 1960s. You might remember that book hanging around the house, Peter. I couldn't stop reading it. And also another great novel, The Great Coat, which was published in 2012. Hammer asked writers to write a series of kind of ghost stories. And this was a really fantastic ghost story. That's another area that I love as well. And it's set in the aftermath of the Second World War. Indeed, yeah, I remember The Great Coat. Fantastic ghost story, but... Yeah, do you remember she, she a coat is found yeah. in the cupboard and oh well I don't want to give it away but it's it's quite extraordinary and it really really kind of scared me. <laughs> yeah, definitely, sure. Definitely a book to read late at night. I'm just wondering, like, why do you like the writing so much? I mean, is there is it because she's a poet? Is is there is there a connection with that? Yeah, I think like I think at a very deep level, I love her writing because obviously I write poetry myself and I connect it with with the way she writes. Her prose, as I said earlier, is always charged by a kind of rare sensibility and an intelligence. She doesn't show off and she has a huge empathy for all of her characters. I feel she's a really deeply humane writer. Also, I have to say, I did have a brief connection with her. I was a young MFA student in Lancaster in the early 1990s and I saw an ad for a poetry workshop that was being run by a poet I had never encountered called Helen Dunmore and also another poet, Philip Gross. 
And so I went along, actually, I went along with um, another emerging novelist at the time, Andrew Miller, and we were really struck by her. I mean, I think she was very inspirational. She was really generous in her guidance to us as young writers that weekend. And I know she trained as a teacher and this was really apparent in her. And in fact, throughout her life, she was renowned for encouraging emerging writers. So from that moment on, I began to read her work in the early 1990s. And I have to say, I was completely hooked yeah, indeed. And, you know, I remember the, and I remember Andrew Miller, who went on to become a very distinguished novelist. And I remember inviting Helen Dunmore to Dublin many years ago and, mm-hmm. and being very impressed by her. And, and of course, she she died quite recently. Yeah, I mean, that is the very sad thing. I mean, it's always sad when a really fine writer leaves this earth. And sadly, Helen Dunmore died in 2017. She was only 64 of cancer. To kind of get back to the book in a way, she lived in Cliftonwood in Bristol, which was the setting of this last book that I've brought in, The Birdcage Walk. And in her obituary in The Guardian, they said that she knew she was dying only at the editing stage of this book. But she suggested in an afterward that she must have known subliminally because the novel was full of a sharper light, rather as a landscape becomes brilliantly distinct in the last sunlight before a storm. So you can hear there, even in the way she's described the book, there is a wonderful lyricism to it. So it's the story of an 18th century, uh, it's set in the, the 18th century in Bristol, the, the land, that the, the city that she knows so well. And so when I was reading this novel, I, I couldn't help but think of Helen Dunmore because um, I'd read that she had a flat in Bristol that she used to like to go to and she used to write there high up over the city. And she'd said in the interview, I found the view beautiful and absorbing, but not a distraction. And certainly from what she produced in this flat, this last book, she was certainly not distracted because it's such a fine book. But just to say as well, in connection with her last novel, her final poetry collection, Inside the Wave, was published in 2017 as well. It was published shortly before her death and posthumously it won the the Poetry Award and the Overall Book of the Year Award in the 2017 Costa Book, Book Awards. So what I really feel about Helen Dunmore is we're so lucky that her books are still with us. It's so tragic and sad that she's gone, but she's such an incredibly accessible, heartfelt writer. And also, I, I would like to say as well, I know you want to say something, but I also want to say she, she, she always, I felt, had an amazing ability to take the past and make it incredibly present for the readers. Well, speaking, I mean, we, we get back to the poetry later, maybe, but just to get back to the, the birdcage walk and indeed the past. I mean, it's a novel yeah. set in the 18th century, but it's, it's, it's kind of, it's a novel about the French Revolution as well, amongst other things, isn't it? I mean, or that's the period. Yeah, well, it's kind of like it, it is, it's set in 1792 in Bristol and the French Revolution is going on. It's not entirely about the French Revolution. We enter the world of this character called John Diner Tread. Tredevant, an 18th century property developer, and he's building a magnificent terrace in Clifton, high, high up above the the Avon Gorge in Bristol. And he's got a wife. She's a second wife. She's a young woman and her name is Lizzie. And throughout the book, we're kind of wondering about the details of his first wife, what happened to her. But as readers, Helen Dunmore is quite clever. We have been witness at the beginning to an eerie description of a man rowing from Bristol um, to a kind of a glade where he's left his dead wife and he's trying to bury her fast where no one will find her. So from the very start, Birdcage Walk has a kind of a thriller feel to it and it just kept me turning the pages. 
Sounds it sounds like too. There's like this impressive, seems to be an impressive array of very vivid characters in it. Oh yeah, completely. And uh, as you said, it is the time of the French Revolution, and this is going to have a catastrophic effect on John Diner's property speculations. Um, of course, this would be catastrophic for most business people, but John Diner, you see, is a really dark character, and Helen Dunmore is brilliant at drawing this kind of oppressive, jealous character out. And there is kind of like nearly in a Heathcliff way there is an undercurrent of violence to him which as I said is just really well depicted by John Moore and this works as a great comparison with his young wife Lizzie and her life kind of balances and depends on on her husband's moods so if he's in a good mood Lizzie is she learns how to kind of humour him to keep the household functioning and Helen Dunmore is always brilliant I think on small domestic details so you really get a sense of the house they're living in but, uh, you know, you kind of feel sorry for Lizzie as well because she she knows that her husband has a secret and she's trying to find out what it has. And also she's unusual because she's been reared in a house very different to the one she lives with with her, her husband. Lizzie's mother, Julia Fawkes, was a renowned late 18th century radical and a writer. And her wisdom is really carefully and subtly depicted by Helen Dunmore. And then she's got a stepfather, Augustus, who's all, also an academic. And he's kind of a charming mix of uh, a brilliant man and also a kindly man. So really, there are very vivid characters there. But but Lizzie, she does suffer. I think she suffers throughout the novel. And of course, as the novel progresses, John Diner's money situation becomes worse and worse and worse. And we feel like we're on the edge of a disaster. So there's a very ominous kind of feeling going throughout this book, which, as I said, makes it really, quite honestly, a page turner. And I mean, obviously, you're saying like John Diner is, is a man with a with a past and a man of secrets. What about his first wife? Yeah, I know exactly. What about his first wife? So so th- what makes this book so engaging is the constant wonder we have about the first wife. What really happened to her? And in this way, it kind of reminds me in a way of Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca. There's a, there are really memorable scenes like there's one where Les, uh, Lizzie goes to the dressmaker where kind of eerily a dress is there which has not been collected by her husband's first wife and Helen Dunmore describes the dress as a silvery waterfall of Spitalfields silk so you can hear even there the way she describes things but this dress makes Lizzie curious because it's such a beautiful dress and she says I'll never understand why she didn't come to fetch her dress so she's thinking this and we're thinking this so it, it makes for a really brilliant novel. I mean, she's drawn, as we've seen, she's drawn constantly constantly to the past. Is she good at evoking the period in this one? Oh, I think it's so vivid. I mean, you spoke about the French Revolution. She's a very brave writer and she isn't prepared to step back and kind of sanitise history in any way. And so when she's describing, for instance, people being killed by the guillotine in France, she doesn't retreat from that horror. She actually says it as it is. And it's also interesting to me as well, I think, that Birdcage Walk is actually a path. It actually exists in Bristol and it leads from the graveyard of a Clifton church. And this is actually where the the fictional Julia lies buried uh, with the inscription, her words remain our inheritance. And I really think that in this novel, Birdcage Walk, Helen Dunmore's words, her beautiful words, remain our inheritance as readers. And I feel this is a novel that will definitely last. That was Enda talking about Birdcage Walk by Helen Dunmore. And can you remind us who published that, Enda? Birdcage Walk is published by Hutchinson. Before we finish up, Enda, you wanted to say something about Helen Dunmore's last collection of poems. 
Yes, I did, because I said, as we said earlier, I really feel that Helen John Moore was always first and foremost a true poet. Way back in 2007, her poem, The Malarkey, which she submitted actually anonymously, won the national poetry competition. And at the time, she, she said it was about what time takes away and how we take time for granted. And I feel that that quote really relates to her last book, the wonderful Inside the Wave, published just before her death. It's heartbreaking, really, because it bridges life and death. And it's also a bit like Birdcage Walk, remarkably brave and honest, 48 striking poems. There's also five versions from Catullus, a Roman poet I know you love very much, Peter. And the title poem, Inside the Wave, is directly connected with Homer's Odyssey and Odysseus's return home from his travels. Um, there's a beautiful poem called My Daughter is Penelope. And as I said, she posthumously won the Costa Poetry Award for this. And even though it's written in the face of death, I feel it's profoundly life affirming. The last poem in the collection, Hold Out Your Arms, is addressed to death. And death is depicted by Helen Dunmore as a mother. I found this poem Really, really moving. It was written just 10 days before her death and it was added to the collection for the second impression of the book published in June 2017. And if you like, Peter, I'll just end by reading the opening lines of this poem. Would you like to hear them? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, So it goes like this. Death, hold out your arms for me. Embrace me. Give me your motherly caress through all this suffering. You have not forgotten me. Thank you. And that was good to t- talk about uh, a fine and much missed writer. So she ended up talking about Birdcage Walk by Helen Dunmore, published by Hutchinson. Inside the Wave by Helen Dunmore, published by Blood Axe Books. I should also say that there's also a selection or a collection of poems that Blood Axe published called Counting Backwards, which has all her work in it. And and um, of course, Inside the Wave was the one that ended up talking. That was, that was again published by Blood Axe. And as usual, details of all these books can be found on booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com Well, it's a huge honour to welcome today's Toaster Challenge guest. She's one of Ireland's best-known broadcasters and journalists. Olivia O'Leary, you're very welcome to Books for Breakfast. Thank you, Enda. It's great to have you here. Well, Olivia, you can sit back there for just a few minutes because I'm going to praise you to the hilt, OK? Oh, no. <laughs> so Olivia joined Orti as a news reporter in 1972 and she was Belfast correspondent from 1975 to 76. She began writing for the Irish Times newspaper in 1978 and she reported from Argentina on the Falklands War. And in 1980, Olivia O'Leary became a presenter on RTE's flagship current affairs programme to date night. She left to work on BBC's Newsnight and was made that programme's first senior female presenter in 1985. She later returned to Today Tonight and she also presented Questions and Answers and Primetime on RTE. Olivia has won three Jacobs Awards during her broadcasting career with RTE. She's also won a Sony Award for her BBC Radio 4 programme Between Ourselves. She has co-authored the book Mary Robinson, the authorised biography with Dr. Helen Burke. And in 2004, she wrote Politicians and Other Animals, a sketch on Irish politics. In 2011, as if that wasn't enough, Olivia, she was awarded an honorary doctorate by her alma mater, UCD. And in 2017, Trinity College awarded her an honorary doctorate. 
Originally from Boris County, Carla, Olivia does a radio column every Tuesday for the Drive Time programme. And of this, Rosita Boland in the Irish Times has said her weekly Drive Time radio diaries are one of the best things on air, always wearing their erudition lightly. So it's really hard to know where to stop about Olivia. She's a woman of many talents and interests. She's also a dedicated member of a choir. I think it's called the Colwick Choral Society, isn't it, Olivia? Yes, it is. Uh, And she also plays the piano. And speaking of music, I read, I think it was in the Irish Examiner, that, Olivia, you love Colin McEnumra's album, The River Holds Its Breath. And Peter and I were delighted to read this because Colm kindly gave us a gift of one of his tunes, Thou Shalt Not Carry, from his album The Hair's Corner for our podcast Signature Music. So delighted that you like Colm McEnumra's music too. But just to start with a brief chat before we begin the Toaster Challenge, we're both wondering, we, we both know you, Peter and I, as many poets do, as a really great presenter of the poetry programme on RT Radio 1. But we were thinking growing up inland on the shores of the River Barrow, which is a really beautiful part of the country. Did it inspire you, Olivia, to have an interest in poetry? And from that, has it become a lifelong interest? I was just wondering. Well, the interest in poetry, it may have come from that. I think it was more really from growing up with music. And, you know, to me, poetry is is, is music in words. Um, but I love the Barrow. I'm looking down on the Green Valley here because I'm living in Gregnamana at the moment. And uh, it was for us it's a, a sort of a linear national park. It was where we played. It was where we partied, where we learned to swim. So we all swim as river swimmers, you know, none of your beautiful American crawls or anything mm-hmm. like that, but sort of doggy paddles. Mm-hmm. Um, and it. It's been to me, when I think of beauty and I think of home, this is where I think of green and quiet and peaceful and endlessly interesting. Different birds, different river animals, you know, the otter, you'll find them early in the morning or late at night, owls overhead. Just very beautiful countryside and lovely because I feel it belongs to me or rather I belong to it. Yeah, um, that nearly sounds like a poem itself, Olivia. It's so beautiful the way you're describing it. We're sitting here in the city. We wish we were there. But but was there a love for poetry in your family home when you were growing up? There was more, I suppose, a love for music and for oh, songs. Yeah. And with me then, I think I began to play with words and I began to realise that poets more than anybody else value words and care about words and defend words and protect words. I, I, you know, I don't think any other literary art cares as much about the use of the word and the precision of the word as poets do. And that's when I began really, really to to admire them, because with very little recognition, they were the great protectors of the word. Mm -hmm. The great protectors, that's a great way of putting it. Olivia, you and I and Peter share a great love for a place in Kerry called Cara Daniel, Derry Nan. And speaking of a love of words, um, I remember last summer uh, the Waterworld poet Paddy Bush and I had the privilege of um, reading poems to an audience in Derry Nan House in the chapel there. And there was a jingle singer, an amazing Shano singer, um, Muir Nick Owley, and she sang 
um, a song by the Eve Raw poet of Daniel O'Connell's time, Tomás Rua Sullivan, who's also buried on the Abbey Island just off the beach in Derry Nan. And I know that you, you like that particular poem. Yeah. And could, you, could you tell me a little bit about why you like it? It seems to combine all the beautiful qualities you were just talking about there. Because, in a way, that song was the beginning of my growing up, the beginning of my separation from my parents and the acceptance from my parents of particular values. So I would have come from a household that wasn't particularly big on Irish, and that was mm. partly a political thing. We weren't Fianna Fáil, let's put it that way. Mm. And I went to the Gaeltacht in Kerry and loved the countryside, had never been to Kerry before I was 14. But what really caught me was when they taught us some songs and one of the songs that they taught us was that wonderful song Our on a Leor and it would have been the lovely minor key really that appealed to me first and then and then the words and when I came home I was playing it on the piano you know 14 years old you're into sad Mm. things and minor keys and my mother asking me what's that song and me telling her and being really enthusiastic about it and realizing that separate from my parents I had found a door into the Irish language and Irish culture which they hadn't found and they didn't know about so that song was precious to me because in a way it was the first time I opened a door into adulthood and said I love this I don't care whether you do or not and I'm going to find out about it and what's more I'm going to tell you about it so I think that's why I love that song in particular but also listening RTE thank goodness every so often rerun programs and Sean O'Rea that did a wonderful series about the Irish song the Irish traditional song and in it he explained the difference between Munster and West of Ireland, Connemara uh, songs in terms of the two different traditions. And the one thing he said about Munster, he said, a little bit like the Munster landscape, you'll find that the songs from that part of the country have great big leaps, big intervals, mm-hmm. octaves, sixths, sevenths. And the the opening of that song, Our Anneliar, is, is, is a lovely one. It goes, Dad, good fifth, yeah. you know. Oh, it's and Canon has written a wonderful poem about that song and about that opening um, deep move from yeah. G, a G down to a C, for instance, a so down to a do. And she, she, she understood that as well, that sort of architectural makeup of a monster yeah. song. Yeah, she's a master song. It's also a wonderfully tragic story as well, isn't it? About the head school master. He's moving from Terry Nan to Port McGee, isn't that right? And then his beautiful collection of manuscripts lost in a storm at sea. I loved the story of it as well. The story was wonderful. The story was wonderful. But it was the actual music that caught my eye because Paddy Bush, inevitably, Paddy's always subversive, you know. And Paddy does (laughs) raise the question as to whether there was an element of bathos in this lament. (laughs) After all, could anybody really feel that terribly sad just about books and yes perhaps they could Um, but he did also warn us that we might all have been taken in Uh, Okay. (laughs) Well, Olivia, thanks for that. And speaking of Terry Nan, I don't think we we can mention it without mentioning uh, the really brilliant two part TV series, The Forgotten King of Ireland, made by yourself and director Alan Gilson and Forty. And O'Connell, Daniel O'Connell is a man you've called a hero, a big man with big ideas. So just really briefly, I I suppose you can't say briefly, but even if you could just tell us a little bit about what it is about his achievements that you so admire. It was the the breadth of mind and the 
realization for a man that was born in the 18th century mm-hmm. that uh, human rights applies to everybody of every color, of every background, and every gender. And it was when I looked into it and I realized that he had read all the great liberal thinking books of the 18th century and he had very early on after reading Mary Wollstonecraft he had said the mind has no gender and it it, it was big in 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 his life because his politics and he said this his politics were based not on might on military might and strength but on persuasion and that women could do that as easily as men. So it all dovetailed, you know, the nonviolent politics, the acceptance and recognition that human rights applied to everybody of mm-hmm. every race and every gender. There was a terrific consistency about about his thought and it's unusual enough to come across a politician who reads deeply and he had read deeply and he was consistent in his standing out against against slavery and he was absolutely vicious to those that he felt had benefited from it and refused to go to America for that reason people think O'Connell went to America and was fated there he never went and refused to go because he felt that the American constitution was a lie because it it left out so many of the people who lived in that country. Yeah, an amazing man. Well, that was a, a really great documentary as well. It was great to bring him back to the fore again. Thank you. Yeah, so thanks for that, Olivia. Well, Olivia, I can see Peter uh, getting the bread ready there. So I'd love to spend more time chatting with you about so many things, music, poetry, Jerry Nan, the list goes on and on. But I think it's time for the toaster challenge and Olivia, you've about two minutes, two and a half minutes to talk about a book that has really touched you. And so I think, are we ready to go, Peter? The bread is going into the toaster. Um, We're really looking forward to hearing your choice. And so one, two, three, the bread is down and off you go. Well, the book that I'm recommending is called Kate O'Brien, A Writing Life, and it's her biography by Ava Walsh, the Irish Academic Press. And the reason I recommend it is that it is so well written. It's an absolute joy to read. And there's no hint of the overly academic, because the great thing is that Eva, as well as being an academic, is, of course, a, a writer, a novelist. And that I think there's no greater compliment to a writer than that her biography should be beautifully written. And it's important uh, for loads of reasons, but he recognised the importance of Kate O'Brien as the most important chronicler of the Irish provincial middle class. Um, And, you know, there's always been a bit of a national myth here that there was no middle class, Catholic middle class, until independence. But, of course, despite oppression and the penal laws, there was. And Kate made no secret of the fact that she was setting out to prove that very point to an English reading public, particularly a British audience. And you see, I'm just old enough to have been part of that world of, 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 you know, good silverware and mahogany furniture, including a pre-due for private prayer. And OK, the furniture was a bit heavy and overwrought and old fashioned, as Kate's prose can sometimes be. But we were part of a Roman Catholic empire and there was travel to the centre, Rome and to Lourdes, even in the 20s and, and the 30s. And 
There were aunts who were nuns and visits to the parlour with wonderful high teas and there were uncles who were priests and they did all the family weddings and births and funerals. And there was intense talk at dinner about religious rules and about Catholic philosophy and everything was was Catholic. I mean, I would also have been there when the whole question about the uh, Vatican II Council was being discussed at, at the dinner table. But everything we did was Catholic. There were Catholic authors, there were Catholic composers. Mozart, of course, was at the top. There were film stars who were Catholic, like Bing Crosby. And her young female protagonists, all of them, they love church and they love family. But yet they need to be free. And that tension is at the centre of all the books. But the new light that Eber threw on Kate, for, for my generation, I'm now 70, is the bigger insight into her lesbianism and her introduction into, you know, what seemed like traditional novels, her introduction of taboo subjects like, like gay love, like adultery, like syphilis, like suicide. And the mix of Catholic guilt and scrupulosity and boarding school convent life and glorious liturgy with sexual sin and death. I mean, that was an erotic, exotic mix, and it still is. This is a great book. That's great, Olivia. Thanks very much. And, and, and that came in exactly on time. I'm, it's, I'm it's... glad the old professional <laughs> counting still yeah. still works, Peter. Yeah. But I, it's, it's, it's great, though, to be to be reminded of, of the groundbreaking achievement of Kate O'Brien. I mean, probably one of the finest of, of Irish writers. Indeed, I remember Eileen Battersby saying of the, the Land of Spices that she thought it was one of the finest Irish novels yet written. And I'm fascinated what you say. I mean, that, that whole kind of Catholic middle class culture that had never been written about before, all that snobbery and repression that, that she writes about so well. And I just wonder sometimes, I mean, that Ireland kind of has vanished in a way. I mean, we're not without snobbery and repression still, but it's a different kind, perhaps. And I, I, I just wonder, now that that Ireland has vanished, is, is her, does her work continue to speak to us? Is she still read? Do you have a sense of, her, of people still engaging with, with her work? I get the impression that younger people find her prose and her obsessions, you know, with things, things Catholic and with, 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 with sin... They, they probably find that hard to grasp. I wonder whether people of my generation may be the last to fully get Kate O'Brien. But it's, it's, it's the chronicling of a particular way of life, a particular awareness and, 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 and sense of sin. I think the sense of sin in the novels is wonderful. And I don't know if anybody has that anymore outside a certain generation. I mean, good old Bat, good old Eileen Battersby, the wonderful thing about her was that yes. she always recognised quality, no matter where it came from. And yeah. she never let the reader down. So she did. She was a great champion of Kate O'Brien. Um, I, I know that I've lent Kate O'Brien novels to English friends and they didn't get it at all. And yet in the 50s, she was an enormously popular novelist in Britain. I mean, she's mentioned, as you know, in Brief Encounters. The lady in Brief Encounters is on her way to the library to borrow a Kate, the latest Kate O'Brien book. So I think we will always probably be reading her now with a slight sense that this is an Ireland that's gone. So we'll be reading it as much for the history as anything else. Thank you very much again, Olivia, for, for coming in and talking to us on the Toaster Challenge today. And 
You were speaking about Kate O'Brien, A Writing Life, and that's a biography written by Ava Walsh and published by the Irish Academic Press. And as usual, all details about the books discussed will be available on our website, www.booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. So thanks once again, Olivia O'Leary. Thank you. So, Peter, a book about a famous dinner or rather a famous lunch and dinner. I'm not quite sure if that's allowed on Books for Breakfast. But anyway, I'm looking forward to hearing about this book, about uh, this famous gathering that you've brought in. I can see it there on the breakfast table. So would you like to tell us a bit about it? Yeah, so this book is called The Immortal Evening and it's a legendary dinner with Keats, Wordsworth and Lamb and it's by the American poet um, Stanley Plumney. So it's a book about a very famous, well, it became a kind of lunch and dinner that took place on the 28th of December in 1817. It was a dinner hosted by the then very famous painter Benjamin Robert Hayden at his house in, in London that he, he had moved into it recently because he had been in very cramped quarters and he was a painter of these enormous pictures and so he had to get a bigger place for his studio and so he, he he decided to bring all these poets together I mean it's it's just it's kind of funny because he has all these people I mean Keats for instance who was just 21 at the time but who only had another four years to live mm-hmm. William Wordsworth was there was there and then he was obviously like a, a well-known very established poet and then Charles Lamb who became the famous essayist that some was had to study in school. And there were a couple of other people as well, including a man called Kingston, who was the, had the grand title of the, the controller of stamps. And wow. that was a bit awkward. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit awkward because Wordsworth worked had a job in the post office and so your man was technically his superior and and kind of reminded him of that during the <laughs> dinner. So it was slightly awkward. Yeah. Um, I mean what yeah. a gathering though. What a yeah, gathering. Yeah, I mean yeah, Charles yeah. Charles Am, he wasn't quite famous yet. Um and yet there they no. all were. I mean, was there any particular reason for this, this well, occasion? Yeah. yeah, there were a few reasons. I mean, Hayden Hayden is a fascinating character. I'll talk a bit more about him later. But I mean he, he mm-hmm. yeah, he, he had the dinner for, I suppose, or the occasion for two main reasons. He wanted to introduce the young and emerging Keats to Wordsworth. Uh, obviously, Wordsworth is the big shot uh, at that point. Yeah, Keats, great, Keats. great romantic poet of the time. Yeah, and they had he had met Keats before, before, but there was a very frosty encounter where he he, he responded to a poem uh, that Keats had written, and he kind of made some pretty disparaging remark about it. So, it, so it wasn't a very brilliant start. So, anyway, that was one reason he wanted that. You know, obviously, Wordsworth is the is the big romantic poet of the time, and the second reason was he wanted to share his progress on what was his most important historical painting to that point. I mean, that's what he was. He was he, he painted these enormous kind of history paintings. Yeah. And, and the one that he was working on at the moment, he was three years into it at this stage, and it's Christ's Entry into Jerusalem, which is an absolutely massive work. Yeah. And what's interesting though is, is that it incorporated the faces of Keats, Wordsworth and, and Lamb. So they're all there anachronistically uh, kind of in, in Jerusalem as Christ enters it. Mm-hmm. And it's a pity, I mean, it actually still exists and it's it's in a, a museum in, in America now. So he wanted to, I suppose, he wanted also to show off his new studio, yeah. uh, which is also the, the dining room. So they're there eating their meal right in front of this enormous picture which oh which <laughs> has them has them in it. I mean, is it fair to say, Peter, that people nowadays may not have heard of Hayden the painter? So so who was Benjamin Robert Hayden? 
Well, I mean, he's he's in a way the chief character of this book. He was he was a very famous painter, or he was trying to become. I mean, it was it was hard work becoming a famous painter, but he was pretty well known. And but he depended on patronage, and he lived totally from hand to mouth. And sometimes people bought his paintings, or some I think the King of England bought one of his paintings. But he spent his life in and out of debtors' prison. Um, you, you know, he was always in debt. He was always on the run from creditors. And he, his life, in fact, had a, had a pretty tragic end. He committed suicide in the end. He, he, you know, it, it all got too much for him. But at this point in his life, he's 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 pretty well known, quite quite famous. You know, for the and he's for these kind of historical paintings, and he goes on lecture tours around England and Scotland and and so on. So he's kind of as well known as he can be. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about all this is because. You realise how much is at stake always, how much how much it takes to survive as an artist in, you know, they're in Regency kind of London and, you know, they're all on their uppers in a way. I mean, obviously Keats, you know, having abandoned medicine, you know, he but doesn't have a job. Wordsworth, that Keats kind of slightly despises the fact that Wordsworth has taken a job in the post office and sold his soul, if you like, for, you know, but, you know, Wordsworth, famous and all as he is, has hardly any way of, of, of living. So he has to, you know, make, you know, and, and Lamb, for instance, who's there as well, works all his life for the East India Company, you know, nine to six every every day, six days a week. And he does all his writing on the job, in, in fact. So kind of money and, and fame and all that is, is very much part of that, the nature of, if you like, creativity. Which is so interesting. And listen, the yeah. book begins by describing various walks that they're taking. Yeah. Can you tell us yeah. a little bit about that? Well, yeah, because they all, yeah, they all had to come from different places, and I, I like the way. I mean, Plumley has kind of imagined the, their 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 various journeys. Obviously, Keats coming from Hampstead, Lamb coming from Covent Garden, and Wordsworth coming from Cavendish Square in the newer sort of Georgian part of the city, and you know, like Lamb is the city man, and for him, the city is nature. The crowds, the very dirt and mud, he says, the sun shining upon houses and pavements, the print shops, the old bookstalls, coffee houses, streams of soups from kitchens, the pantomimes, London itself a pantomime and a masquerade. All these things work themselves into my mind and feed me without power of satiating me. So that's lamb. And then words with a course is the countryman. No great love of the city, but of course, he's also the poet of upon Westminster Bridge. You know, earth mm. hath not anything to show more fair. You know, dull would he be of soul who could pass by a sight so touching in its majesty and all, so, and all that. Mm-hmm. And according to Hazlitt, Wordsworth walked 180,000 miles in his life. So he won't notice this particular uh, <laughs> Exactly. Walk. A short walk to the house. It's quite a long book. Looking at it there, it looks quite long. Is it all about that one day and evening? Yeah, it's funny because I mean, that, I, part of the reason I bought it was because it's it's, it's such an uh, to me attractive idea that you know here's a book about a dinner. I mean, or or okay, lunch and dinner. How can he sustain it? And uh, and if, and where's all the information going to come from? And of course, yes, he does describe the the dinner, the meal in death, largely through looking at the diaries of Hayden and and others who were there. But he, you know, he he uses it also as a way of talking about the kind of what happened before and, and after mm-hmm. to, to look at the whole kind of network of friendship among these um, poets and writers the nature of kind of the romantic movement in, in England you know so it's 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 very much not just mm-hmm. that it's also of course the life of, of Hayden as well so so 
from this point onwards and 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 and, so, and you know there's all there's all kinds of stuff in it i mean i mean there's people who weren't there of course like like hazlitt um who was the leading art and literary critic of his day or coleridge who was the great um friend companion of the wordsworths and you know, so we get all kinds of other stuff that's there, like has its own disastrous dinner for the baptism of his son, for instance. He, mm-hmm. he invites everyone to come, he forgets to find a parson, and then he's out looking for him when the guests arrive, and then there's no food. And finally, a dish of potatoes, cold, waxy and yellow, as Hayden remembers it, uh, mm-hmm. are, brought, are brought out. So it's kind of, it's 1817. It's that day, three days after Christmas, but it's, yeah. the, whole, it's the whole rest of their lives. It, it does go back and forward in, in, in time. I mean, but there are some brilliant things in it. Yeah, you tell know, us it, some it, of the things you thought were, were brilliant. I mean, really what I'm hearing as well is this idea of the dinner and the supper. It's really a yeah. hook to kind it's of hook, hang, yeah. Yeah. hang a portrait, an actual portrait of the romantic yeah. poets, but also to, to hang the the portrait of the web of their friendship. That was such a crucial part of everything, wasn't it? It is. And in fact, as a, a good example of that, I mean, he goes, he goes back in time to... You know, Lamb meeting William and Dorothy Wordsworth in uh, 1797 in, mm-hmm. in Somerset, which was a rare excursion out of London for Lamb. And he meets his old school pal, Coleridge. You know, at that point, Wordsworth is 27, Coleridge is 25, Lamb is, is 22, you know. So they're quite um, so young, really. Yeah, and you, real, and, and, and you realise, yeah, I mean, that, that whole network of, of friendship. And, and, you know, Wordsworth and Coleridge are good friends at that point, And they have kind of merged into what Plumley calls a single signature and singular imagination. And of course, one result of this is the lyrical ballads, which come out the following year. So friendship is, is one of the big themes. And he reminds us that, you know, friendship for all four of these friends is is life. Mm-hmm. But at, at this particular point, Wordsworth unusually is living in, the two of them are living in comparative luxury in this country mansion. And so they're in this kind of splendid pile when Sarah Coleridge, I love, and this is an amazing story, I think, Sarah Coleridge accidentally spills a skillet of boiling milk on her husband's foot. And so he can't go about walking with them. You know, so, so what does he do? And I think this is actually my favourite part of the book. He stays at home and he writes one of the most amazing poems in in the language, one of the so-called conversation poems, This Lime Tree Bower, My Prison. Um, so, um, so Peter, I, we need a skillet of boiling milk if we're going to write brilliant poems, isn't that it? <laughs> this is this is it. Let me just give. I mean, let me just give you a little bit of that. I mean, yeah, absolutely, we do. It would be lovely to hear it. This lime tree. Ah, no, it's just, it's, I'm not going to read it. No, but it's just that it's just that thing of because again, it's a poem very much about friendship and particularly about his friendship with Charles Lamb. This lime tree bower, my prison. Well, they are gone, and here must I remain. This lime tree bower, my prison. I have lost beauties and feelings. So which would have been most sweet to my remembrance and, and so on. And then he talks about Charles, my gentle hearted Charles, thou hast pined and hungered after nature many a year in the great city pent with sad yet patient soul. And we realise later that Lamb has been going through the the, the total mill at, at this point. He was very close to his um, sister mm-hmm. and his sister had a breakdown as part of which she stabbed their mother to, to death. And then so Lamb had to find her a kind of private asylum in which he could put her to keep her out of the, the reach of, of the law. And so she kind of spent a lot of her life kind of in and out of, of, of madness. And of course, he had to take care of her. And it's one of the reasons as well that he had to spend his whole life working in the East India Company. 
So there, you know, there so literally is a feast of stories in this book about there, them all. And I mean, that's an incredible story about his older yeah. sister stabbing his mother to death. I mean, yeah. as the book develops, does it becomes, become more about Hayden himself and his various travails? Yeah, it, 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 it does. And... You know, so we see the ups and downs. I mean, it's, it's very interesting as a portrait of Regency London because it's, it's all happening there and you and you have massive contrast between the life of the very wealthy and descriptions of fabulous meals. And whereas the meals that the, the artists would have had are, are pretty simple affairs, a bit of wine, a bit of an old chop or maybe maybe some roast beef and, 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 and a few spuds, mm-hmm. you know, that, you know, but we, we get all these lavish descriptions of meals in the palace uh, and, 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 and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, no, Hayden, you know, there's descriptions of his time in the prison and, you know, getting in and out of that. And eventually, you know, he he gets to the age of 60 and he goes out and he buys a pair of pistols and he comes back and he shoots himself. And that doesn't even manage to, to, to do the job. And, mm. and so he's staggering around his room, cutting his own throat after several attempts. And that and that becomes the, the, the end of him. But there's an interesting kind of aftermath in that. He wrote a note to the Prime Minister, Robert Peel, and he asked Peel to look after his family, which he did. Peel set up a committee and they awarded a generous pension to to his family. So, in fact, so he, in effect, died to preserve the life of his family. It's very, so it's a very sad yeah. um, story. And it is, I mean, what's sad also, I mean, obviously all these characters are so, you know, well-known now and famous and we read them still, but nobody goes and looks at Hayden. I mean, he's, I he's he was, and he was a great catalyst. The other thing he did was he introduced Keats to the Elgin Marbles, for instance, and, and right. they, that had a huge impact. You know, they had just been recently stolen, in effect, by Lord Elgin and were in his back garden why the likes of Byron and others were, were protesting against this kind of cultural theft. But Keats saw these and, and was totally stunned by them and, and, and it influenced great poems like Ode in a Grecian Urn or, or a sonnet hero directly after seeing them. Yeah, so, so yeah. yeah, it's full it's full of that kind of, those kind of stories, you know. And also, I suppose, it, it, it's the kind of book that will bring you back again to Wordsworth's writing, Coleridge's writing, Lamb's writing. And certainly I'm going to be looking up Benjamin Robert Hayden. What an amazing dinner to have had on the 28th of December, 1817. The and, Immortal and Evening by Stanley Plumley. I mean, you, you said like more to say, Peter, you're so excited about this book. No, I, I, I mean, and also just Google the picture. Have a look at the picture. I mean, as well, you know, the famous mm-hmm. kind of, and you, and you'll see the pictures. You can make out Lamb and Wordsworth and Keats in 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 that picture. So just have a have a Google of that and and and, and um, maybe we should yeah. hang it up in our own kitchen wall and invite friends around for dinner and, and superimpose their faces on it. <laughs> yeah. That might be another idea. That was Peter talking about Stanley Plumley's very interesting book, The Immortal Evening. It's published by Norton and Company. We, I think we've reached the end of our Books for Breakfast podcast this morning. I'm definitely rushing off to have more coffee. And I'm Enda Wiley and if Peter Sarah here with me. And Peter, would you like to tell everyone about the details of the podcast if they'd like to listen again? Well, you can subscribe at all the usual sources, Google and Apple and so on. And if you want to check out the notes that go along with this uh, podcast, you can go to booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. And yeah, so... We'll be back again next Thursday morning. We'll have the toast on. We'll have the kettle boiling. We will have more books to discuss. And we're looking forward to having you here. So goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.